All right, if you picked up some aquatic sounds just then, I promise it wasn't me leaving the door open. My dog just drank like a whole bowl of water. Okay, because I was kind of thinking, like, is Evan unclogging the toilet with the mic still on? (laughs) Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for Monday, January 13th, 2019. My name is Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan, what are we here to do today? Today we are going to do what we do every day, Joe. Plan to take over the world. Through Again? our Yep. We haven't we didn't we didn't knock it out of the park yet. But we're gonna use our preferred method of good faith discourse, coming at topics in an adequately informed way and encouraging you all to join in on the discussion. Yes. And we recognize that we are not human. <laughs> we are we are only human. We are only human. We are not perfect. Uh, we don't know everything. We are not on the ivory tower. So, yeah. So, Evan, what what uh, what do you want to talk about this week? Well, Joe, uh, all of our last few episodes have been so sad. Having to talk about. The impeachment of a president talking about uh, imminent war, perhaps, and just an entire decade-long shit show within the political arena. So I want to talk about something that makes me happy. And these days, few things are making me as happy as Adam Driver. Adam. Yeah, I think that he has... Uh, He's really burst onto the scene this year and he's quickly, well, not that this was his debut year, but I think this was the year where he became sort of cemented as one of my favorite actors. So I just want to go ahead and talk about his life and his career and some of my favorite Adam Driver performances. Yeah, he he definitely hit the zeitgeist this year. Like, you know, he's he's been acting for a few, you know, in the mainstream acting world for a few years now, but it really seems like this year he, you know, the culture has absorbed him. He is but. he has really hit that next level. Adam Driver was born on November 19th, 1983 in San Diego, California. But by the age of seven, his family had moved to Mishawaka, Indiana, where he grew up and really sort of became who he was. In high school, he acted in plays. He was a theater actor, but he didn't really do much else with acting. Not a big theater scene over in Mishawaka, as you can imagine. After high school, he applied to Juilliard and he didn't get in. And he didn't apply to any other schools. And so he was kind of just hanging out in his mom's house, paying rent. He worked a few odd jobs. He tried to sell vacuum cleaners door to door and he just generally didn't know what he was meant to do or what he wanted to do and then 9-11 happened and two days after 9-11 he joined the marines and he really sort of found that structure and discipline and fraternity that he was looking for within the Marines. And he went through all of his training. He was ready to ship out. But just before he was going to be deployed to the Middle East, he was injured in a non-military accident and was discharged. So after he had found this group that he really loved and enjoyed being a part of, 
it was all sort of taken away from him. But he still said, well, the only other thing that I've ever thought I wanted to do was act. So he reapplied to Juilliard. And this time he got in and he took classes. Uh, actually, initially, before he reapplied to Juilliard, he actually lived in Indianapolis here where I live for a year attending the University of Indianapolis. But he, mm. he didn't really care for it. Yeah. Only spent a year there and it wasn't really for him. But then did reapply, got into Juilliard, and graduated in 2009. From there, he started taking small TV roles and then broke into the film game. My first exposure to Adam Driver was not something that I was aware of because he just has a small role and I am not interested in trying to learn every single background bit player, so I was not conscious of it, but he does have a role in Clint Eastwood's 2011 film, J. Edgar, and that is sort of the first film role where it became something that I would have seen and did see. He further appeared in the movies Francis Ha and Lincoln in the meantime, again, movies that I saw at the time, but had no did not register to me at all that it was a guy named Adam Driver. He was just some guy. And then the first time that I became conscious that, hey, this guy is Adam Driver, he is acting in this movie, was in 2013 when he appeared in a small role in the Coen Brothers Inside Lewin Davis. And if anyone's seen the movie, it's it's the most memorable scene perhaps from the movie. He is one of the session musicians named Al Cody, based on Ramblin' Jack Elliott, who plays on the session for Please Mr. Kennedy. That's where his famous um, outer space line comes from. It's, it's, it's hilarious. Everyone should look this up uh, if, you're, if you're not already familiar. Adam Driver sings Please Mr. Kennedy with Oscar Isaac and Justin Timberlake. And so that, that scene finally caught my attention. And then I more or less knew who Adam Driver was. And then in 2015, he got his huge break when he was cast as the new Sith Lord Kylo Ren in the new Star Wars films. And this is what elevated him to his initial level of international recognition. Capitalizing on the success of Star Wars, he was able to score leading roles in both Jim Jarmusch's Patterson and Martin Scorsese's Silence, both in 2016, where he gave absolutely fantastic and nuanced performances in meteor roles and continued to grow his profile within Hollywood. He continued to do these types of roles until 2018 when he starred in Spike Lee's Black Klansman alongside John David Washington. This was his critical coronation. It was widely considered to be one of the best performances of the year, Everyone sort of acknowledged that he was an actor working at the top of his craft, and it culminated in him receiving his first Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actor for yeah. Black Klansman. Good Joe, movie. Some, I was going to say, that's a movie you've seen, isn't it? Yeah, you, you, the, the one of like five movies I've seen in the last two years. <laughs> but so. uh, what, what, what do you think of his performance in Black Klansman? I thought it was good. I mean, I don't know if it was like a cat. I don't know how to judge acting. So it's like a lot of stuff. It's like, ah, that's good. I don't have anything. Yeah. I don't have beefs. 
<laughs> and I like Black Klansman a lot too. It probably wouldn't rank among my favorite Adam Driver performances, but it's very solid, and I was always happy to see him get that recognition. Yeah. So that brings us to this most recent completed year of cinema, 2019. And this, as Joe mentioned, was the year where Driver was just absolutely inescapable. And I think this year really highlights what I love so much about Adam Driver because he was starred in four different films that all had widely different tones and styles and even genres at the most base level. And he nailed each and every role, regardless of the underlying quality of the film. So the first movie that came out with Adam Driver in it this year was Jim Jarmusch's zombie comedy, The Dead Don't Die. The two had previously collaborated on Patterson, and I guess the relationship worked well enough for both of them that they wanted to re-up for another film. Here he starred alongside Chloe Sevigny and Bill Murray as police detectives in a small town trying to navigate the zombie apocalypse. And this movie screened at Cannes where it was met with really mixed reviews. And then the reviews here in the United States were mixed to negative. I really enjoyed the film. I think that it it is intentionally really laboriously paced. And if you're not <laughs> if you're not on that wavelength, it's going to be tough to enjoy. But I appreciated how uncompromising and unique Jim Jarmusch's vision was. And as a comedy, it worked. I laughed a lot. I dug the self-referentiality and it was fantastic. Adam Driver has to give this absolutely deadpan performance as the world is going to shit around him. He gives almost this blank affect the entire time that is just so comedically incongruent that it, it just works. And this is where one of the best Adam Driver memes of the year comes from, which is just the the two-second clip of him saying ghouls because it's just the type of zany line reading that was called for in the role, and I responded very positively to it. And then out of nowhere, our call dropped. All right, I don't know exactly where we left off, but I'm just going to go. I, I've said my piece on, on the dead don't die. It's a very funny performance, deadpan zombie apocalypse comedy, very different from the other types of things that Adam Driver has been asked to do. His next movie was Marriage Story. And this is a searing relationship drama. The way that it's been described is a love story told at the end during the divorce of Charlie and Nicole Barber, played by Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson, as they navigate shifting their lives across both the East and West Coast and fight for custody of their young son. And this requires an absolute level of raw emotion that is very difficult for any actor to obtain, even if they are typically known only as a serious dramatic actor. There is a scene into the the end of the second act of the film where he and Nicole have 
a gargantuan fight, a real knockdown drag out affair. And there's not any one moment that is really a tear jerking moment. And yet the emotion is just so overwhelming within that scene and within both of their performances that it, it moved me to tears having watched it. And it's a really mature and complex role. And it is something that he absolutely nailed. And if you're familiar with my other venture of Midwestern perspective, where I do my, my film and culture commentary, you'll know that he was nominated for an Evie for best leading actor this year for his performance in marriage story. Good deal. Yeah. It was definitely all over Twitter. Yeah. I haven't seen it, but it was everywhere. Yeah. And the thing is, I think there's been a lot of criticism of marriage story, but it seems like it's mostly coming from people who haven't watched the film, who've taken maybe a scene or just an image out of context and, and used it as a justification to slam the film. So Evan, they don't need context. They've seen enough. uh, Apparently they sure think so. If you, uh, so if, if that's you, shame on you because that's not how you evaluate film and it's not how you evaluate performance. And if you did watch all of marriage story and didn't like it or didn't like the performance, I would genuinely like to know why, because you would be the first person. I have not talked to a single other person who is in the know about film, who has said that it was not a fantastic movie and a fantastic performance. All right. So we've got zombie comedy and we've got emotionally difficult marriage drama. Next, he appeared in the final chapter of this most recent Star Wars trilogy, Star Wars, The Rise of Skywalker. And this was a movie that I thought really failed on its own merits. But even within that film, Adam Driver's performance as Kylo Ren was extraordinarily solid. He has to grapple with these competing forces of the darkness that is in him and in his past and the light that he is called to, in addition to performing action sequences and a few light stunts. So even within a sort of more action-y sci-fi movie, he still gives a fantastic performance and finds the humanity of his character. So that's number three. And then his fourth and final role is one that I would suspect the fewest people have seen, but it's The Report. And this, I think, is an under-the-radar movie that I really enjoyed. It's about a former congressional staffer, Daniel Jones, who compiled a 7,000-page report on the use of enhanced interrogation techniques in Iraq and Afghanistan, essentially exposing the extent to which the United States used torture on suspected terrorists against the Constitution and against the Geneva Convention and against the public statements of Bush administration officials. And he, the the real man, Daniel Jones essentially dedicated his life and years of his productivity to this project all to be met with hostility towards everyone who was implicated in his study. And so this is definitely a, again, different from all of the other roles we've already discussed. It's a political thriller and he gets 
sort of more almost Aaron Sorkin-y speeches that require him to go on a rant and a tangent and explain the the outrage of the of, of the outrage that comes from understanding what horrible methods of torture we employed and what that means. And so it, it sort of completes this really beautiful set of four films that all ask him to do something different as an actor and ask him to do something unique as a performer in a way that proves his range and depth and the consistency to always give a fine performance. It's good. Cool dude. Yes. Now, now, Evan, with all that, you have not once weighed in on the debate of whether Adam Driver is hot. He's not hot. He's not a conventionally attractive man. Um, there's nothing against him. I certainly don't judge him. But, you know, you said it. So, no, I don't think he's hot. Wow. Hot take. Well, not hot take. Mm. Why? Yeah, do it's you, a take on hotness. Do you have a take on this? No, but it was also on Twitter, so I got to ask. Okay, and That's like 90% of the discussion I see on Adam Driver. <laughs> I get dragged into some places I don't care to be on Twitter. <laughs> I mean, I was just trying to respect him as an artist, but okay. Yeah. He's just <laughs> no, a piece of meat. Is he good to look at? He's good to look at. That doesn't mean he's attractive, if that makes sense. But I think that really kind of plays into why he's become such a a relatable avatar is that he's not some imposing supermodel presence. I think it's really easy for audience members and especially male audience members to sort of project themselves onto him as he is doing anything from battling zombies to trying to trick or treat with his son. I think that it's actually kind of an asset and makes him more relatable in that way. I mean, yeah, he's got the relatable story of our, uh, our us Midwestern men. Yeah. Lived in Mishawaka. That could have been Galesburg. It, yeah, kind <laughs> of. Um, oh man, trying to go to school and then having to work odd jobs while living with the family that, you know, I haven't lived that life, but I know a lot of people who have. Mm-hmm. Um, going into the military, not quite part of the story that I know, you know, most of the people I know, but I know it's a story that happens commonly to people around us. So mm-hmm. maybe when we make our grand cultural piece about the Midwest, Adam Driver will be in it. I think so. That seems likely. He'll get it. <laughs> He'll get the Midwestern goodbye scene. <laughs> So another thing that I appreciate about Adam Driver, and it's already basically come up, but just his range. I think that there's any director who is working on any project should feel absolutely comfortable casting him in any role. I think that he's proven that. And a lot of it comes just through commitment to his craft. I mean, we've talked about his attractiveness, but if you watch his face while he performs, he's able to convey a great range and depth of his emotion with just his facial expressions and body language in addition to what he's able to do vocally. So I think that he is the total package. He has acquitted himself well in every genre, every acting challenge given to him. And I have absolutely loved watching the year of Adam Driver. 
And to many more years of Adam Driver. Hopefully. Hopefully he doesn't pull a Daniel Day-Lewis and get so good that he just retires. You know, that's respectable. It is, but I just want more Phantom Threads. You want your little monkey to keep acting until you're satiated, but you're never satiated. That's true. We're finding a real darkness in in the culture industry. Yeah, we're trying. I'm trying to bring it down. (laughs) You're trying to bring it up. I'm trying to bring it down. Well, at the risk of being brought down anymore, Joe. Yeah, Evan. What do you want to talk about? Oh, my mine will be a little bit, uh, a little shorter, a little less full throated. So I came across this article in The Atlantic that uh, really spoke to me, and it's uh, titled The Boys Who Wear Shorts All Winter. And it's about mostly younger boys, you know, between the ages of like 11 and whenever, who wear shorts all winter. And I must confess, I have been one of those boys. Not all winter, not all the time, but I am definitely not opposed to wearing shorts in winter. And this comes, this article goes in like, it it seems to be like they saw someone who was like, hey, that's a boy who wears shorts in the winter. Now what's he doing? Everybody else is wearing pants. Huh. I wonder if this is a common occurrence. Hey, everybody else, you know these people? Yeah, I've seen them. Okay, let me talk to some people about it. And it kind of, you know, the article kind of goes into like, oh, are they just trying to be edgy? Are they really just saying that they're, you know, are they truly just not hot or not cold? Which, you know, always felt like the case for me. Or is it young boys coming to terms with masculinity at an early age and deciding that they're tougher than the cold. So they choose to wear shorts the whole time because they want to be defiant to society. and want to show that they're tougher than just a cold day. And I got to say it all. Yeah. It's all of that. All of it all at once. You know, most of the time when people offer, (laughs) explanations for things and they're like oh it could be several different things and then it's like oh it's just a combination of all of them (laughs) um i like wearing shorts i'm not wearing shorts right now but i was earlier today because i just i don't know they just feel better some you know most of the time with pants they feel a little restrictive you know i'm wearing sweatpants right now which are the least restrictive pants and yeah Ode to the guy, you know, the boys who wear shorts during winter. I I know what they're going through. And maybe they're just little hot guys. Like, you know, their bodies are hot. Not like attractive, but high temperature. <laughs> but Not like Adam Driver or anything. Yeah. But it's just... I don't uh, know. Because I, I, I also read the article. Believe it or not, I did. Um, yeah. And, and I think that kind of the claim that they made is they talked to... What was it like a pediatrician or something who said that the the warmth factor really doesn't make a lot of biological sense because children, their body temperature only varies by about one degree, which wouldn't be enough to make you not cold if it was cold outside. So I tend to go for a more social explanation, the idea that that, yeah, it's, it's I mean, a marker of well, toughness. 
I have like this is anecdotal because this is me. But historically, whenever I go to the doctor, my body runs a little cold than most people. And I am normally very uh, resilient against the cold. You know, no matter how cold it gets, I don't really most of the time I don't get actually cold. It's just like something I endure. And I especially don't get cold on my legs, which is why I'm not averse to wearing shorts. My torso can get cold. My my arms can get chilly, but uh, my legs don't. And that's just something I feel. And it's something that I've always kind of had happened. You know, it's like it's cold out, but I'm not like shivering or, uh, you know, just actually really cold. I just it's just cold. Just something you deal with. It's like the people who don't sweat when it's really hot out. Are there people yeah. like that? Yeah. There are some, there are people who, I mean, there are people who sweat drastically less than other people. Um, like I am a sweaty boy. There is also that reason why I like the cold is because I hate sweating at all. And it doesn't take much to get me to sweat. So if it's a little bit colder, I prefer that. And I will defend the boys who are like, I just don't get cold because I understand that feeling. So why then do you think or it's lack of feelings? I don't know. See, I think that when it when it is cleaved across such gender lines as it was observationally within the piece, and I think we can sort of agree that it, from our own anecdotal experience, it seems to be true that it's mostly or exclusively boys. I feel like there's definitely a a social construction of gender component to it. That well, now you're bringing me down that, you know, for some <laughs> sexist reason, boys are wearing shorts in the winter. I don't think it's sexist. I just think that that's, that's a part of masculinity and, you know, toxic masculinity that we're we all. We need to let girls wear shorts in the winter too. I mean, I know, I know Lindsay wants to, but. I mean, I could also imagine that there's some level where there's fewer uh, fashion expectations on, you know, boys. And this is like, you know, it's not about wearing something edgy or, you know, that, you know, crosses, you know, some social political line. It's like, I just want to wear shorts. I just want my calves to be out in the breeze. It's a cold breeze, but they want to be out there. Well, I don't think that it's conscious, but I think we do have to ask what what would make exclusively boys want to have their calves out in the breeze. And I'm not saying that it operates on an I'm trying to be edgy level, but just to the extent where, you know, you, you feel good by proving that you're tough and you prove you're tough by enduring cold and you endure cold by wearing shorts. You know, it, it doesn't have to operate consciously for it to have an impact on the behavior. Yeah. It's just, I get a little wary because anytime like a gender aspect is brought into the world of guys, it's normally to be like, and guys suck, right? I mean, I, <laughs> whatever they do is toxic and bad and all this stuff because they're men. So, well, I think it's important to remember when we talk about traits of toss toxic masculinity, 
it's the masculinity that's toxic, not necessarily the men themselves, because an element of toxic masculinity is that it hurts the men too. And, you know, is this a case where they're really going to injure themselves by wearing shorts? Probably not, but it's the same idea. Yeah. And in the end, if they're not cold and they don't get frostbite, yeah, wear, yeah. wear your shorts, bud. I mean, I've definitely been the guy who wears like shorts and flip flops on a snowy day before. <laughs> um, I, you know, it just doesn't affect me. I don't know why. So, what and would you say e- to your what would you say to your son if he refused to wear pants when it was like below freezing? Yeah, I don't know. He'd be like, "Huh, I did that too." I wonder if it's just a thing. Hey, why aren't you wearing pants? Oh, you just want to? Okay. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But there do you, are definitely. Do you know? No, I don't. I mean, there have also. I mean, when I have, when it has been very cold, and I like, you know, when I was younger and did like snow removal and stuff, my mom would always try and get me to wear like extra layers of pants, and I'm like, come on, I'm already wearing pants. Like, what more am I gonna need? Extra layers of pants? No. <laughs> Wearing two pants? What is that? Jeez. I don't get it. So, to you boys out there who wear shorts all winter long, I salute you in your endeavors. You may be looked with ridicule, and that may or may not be deserving, but keep on keeping on. Keep on trying. Wear, wear, wear your shorts, man. You do you. All society says, you know, do your thing, be yourself. Well, I'll support you in being yourself in this instance. So, yeah. Cue the drums. So, Joe, what's our main topic today? Oh, shit. You sprung it on me. Oh, Um, yeah. We sprung. Yeah. We sprung. (laughs) <laughs> so today we are going to have a conversation or a discussion, if you will, kind of ideas in what forgiveness looks like in a secular society. We live in an age where we definitely seem to be dealing with what do we do with people who have been who have done wrong but it's not like quite in a strict legal sense and so they don't go to jail over it uh what does that look like and can they be forgiven so because of course the the important component here is the phrase in a secular society because for a long time ideas of forgiveness were dominated by judeo-christian ideas of repentance and forgiveness as spelled out in religious texts. And there's nothing wrong with that conception. That's still how I try to approach it within my daily life and in my personal dealings. But as society veers farther and farther away from religious frameworks, how then do we recontextualize something 
as important as forgiveness and redemption. But, you know, this is like the flip side of the cancel debates. So, I mean, there, so people do things wrong and then it got, gets brought up to the public attention. And, you know, in some ways, uh, people who get canceled, at least, you know, the really big ones uh, who are like A-list celebrities or whatever, you know, they can weather it. But, I mean, they definitely get, you know, cast aside by, you know, certain segments of society. And when someone does something wrong, you normally don't lord that over their head, you know, for the rest of their lives. Can you imagine having a, a an intimate partner or a friend who is always reminding you of mistakes you've made and even after your apologies and attempts to make it right still would not let you move on? Obviously, that would be absurd and nobody would want to be in that position. But socially, when there's power dynamics and huge amounts of money and status involved it gets trickier yeah so what uh, one story we're we're going to use as a framing device here is the story of louis ck who has been uh you know through the the canceled graveyard and back again so how long ago was it was it two years ago when this started? I, be- I believe so. Well, yeah, if we're 2017. Three. Yeah, we'll, we'll yeah. take it at 2017. Yeah, about 2017 allegations that he used his stature of being a celebrity and a, a star maker in some ways, a gatekeeper to the comedy industry to have younger female comics watch him masturbate in private and this came to light and he very quickly went from being the kind of lovable fuck up comic that you know all of society thought was great edgy and insightful to being seen as a shitbag who with no redeeming qualities yeah persona non grata and the question becomes well so louis ck i mean he he had a lot of money and if he wanted to after all those allegations he could have probably just retired and done nothing for the rest of his life but is that what we expect people to do when they uh you know transgress in a societal way like that like you know, if somebody, you know, conducts sexual misconduct with someone, does that mean that they need to go away for forever? Because, you know, if they're not Louis C.K. with a whole ton of money, that's not a workable solution for every instance of this. And we get, you know, we start getting into like, I mean, Louis C.K. has obviously come back and started to do comedy. And he still faces great criticism from people for, you know, coming back and doing comedy. So what, you know, kind of 
what mechanisms would be needed to forgive someone? And can we forgive people for doing this kind of stuff? Well, I want to pull apart the Louis C.K. example a little bit because I do think it's very indicative of a lot of this discourse. He started off really strong by saying, basically after everything had surfaced, his first public comment was, you know, I I guess this was not good and I've done a lot of talking, so now I'm just going to shut up and listen and you won't hear anything from me. But that only lasted about a year before he tried to mount his comeback. And so that is what struck people as disingenuous. And it's really tough in a situation where it's not, it's something that's clearly everyone agrees. We both agree that it's wrong and inappropriate behavior and should not be socially encouraged, but it's not criminally actionable because when someone's convicted of a crime, then they get a sentence. And that's how we societally accept that they have repaid their debt to society. But for someone like Louis C.K., who has done something that either uh, there's not enough tangible evidence to make a court case about or the statute of limitations has expired, there's no, there will never be a more or less impartial arbiter to hand down a sentence. So it seemed like he self-imposed a one-year exile and that clearly was not perceived as a stringent enough punishment. And then, I mean, part of it also with uh, the Louis C.K. bit was that he, I mean, in the way that he came back, he kind of, you know, I guess I haven't seen any of his comedy since then, but there's been talk that, you know, his, you know, most recent comedy is kind of a dig at the whole idea of being canceled that, you know, in the end, he didn't really, you know, I, I may be putting words to him that maybe he hasn't expressed, but it just seems like it hasn't been apologetic since he went on his hiatus. But then again, it's like, how long do we punish these people for these things before, you know, they're a good upstanding citizen? And then again, you know, a lot of people who go to jail for crimes, those crimes still kind of linger with them for a while. So not everybody's going to be on board the Louis C.K. bus. I mean, who knows if they ever were, but they're certainly not going to be now with those allegations. And I think the important thing that you bring up is that it doesn't appear that his new material has demonstrated that he's learned anything or that he has shown genuine contrition. It seemed like he wanted to go to the penalty box and then pick up exactly where it left off. And people are upset because the point of quote unquote canceling him is to say these set of actions and these types of behaviors are not okay. And you can't be in morally upstanding company when you do these types of things. And it doesn't seem like that point landed with him at all. Yeah, but then, you know, it's also like, you know, he took a year long break of doing comedy, doing his craft. And, you know, I could imagine, I mean, it could be in his head that 
maybe he did learn a lesson. He went into the, you know, the timeout box and thought, you know, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not masturbating in front of anybody now. <laughs> like, you know, what do I do? What else do you do? I mean, well, do you- I think that's what I'm going to put up as the number, the, the first pillar for what forgiveness looks like in a secular society is that you have to demonstrate knowledge of your error and you have to outwardly prove that the errors will not be replicated. It's not enough, I don't think, to just have him stop doing what he's doing. I think he needs to openly admit how bad his behavior was and have alter his career to reflect that. Right. And that, and that's where you get, you know, in these creative professions, it's odd. Like, so like if you do sexual misconduct at like a business and you end up getting let go from that business because you committed sexual misconduct, you can go to another business and get hired and, you know, you got like a whole new set of people going on, but within the entertainment world, your business is everybody mm-hmm. in a weird, in a weird way. And so, it's so like, public. Yeah. Part of it gets, you know, with it being a medium, you know, that gets broadcast everywhere. It's shown to people. It's ac- accessible to everybody. It gets weird in a weird place for the victims as well. Like, one of the main victims of Louis C.K. was Tig Nataro, a stand-up comedian. She got roped into, you know, getting masturbated in front of by Louis C.K., which felt, you know, because of power dynamics, very forced. And, you know, it is her kind of position that she never wants to see Louis C.K. again and, you know, wants him out to be out of the business. Because, you know, you... <laughs> Because if he's still out there doing stuff, you know, she can't like hide from that. And especially in the world of, you know, comedy, that's pretty insular. That's, you know, hard to do, you know, to get away from him. Mm -hmm. And so defenders of her like to take on the stance that, you know, he needs to, you know, stop doing whatever he's doing because, you know, that's hurtful to victims, you know, and it's always a balance, you know, you gotta, you know, injustice, there's doing justice to the victim and then there's enacting justice on the perpetrator and there's always a balance. Um, but with entertainment specifically, it's hard, but back to your point about, uh, the first pillar of forgiveness in uh, secular society, which is, you know, admitting your fault and showing that you've learned your lesson from it. You know, it's one that I I'm, I'm for that. I'm very much for that. That's one way I believe forgiveness should be, or uh, one of the conditions for forgiveness, because it definitely seems like there's a lot of people where they want to, just kind of go to, I mean, like we said before, they want to go to the penalty box. Then they want to come out and be like, I, I did my debt to society. Like people who go to jail, like there are plenty of people who go to jail, get out and are never sorry for what they do. Yeah. But I guess, you know, 
oftentimes they aren't public figures and they aren't trying to curry favor with the public as well. Mm-hmm. So if you can go out, you can do your bad thing and you could go and continue on unapologetically, but you're not going to be treated favorably by everybody. And there are certain sectors of polite society will have trouble being with, you know, said person because of their reluctance to apologize for whatever misdeeds they did. And the apology is not insignificant because when you do wrong to someone, there's the initial pain of whatever the act is and then it it's essentially gaslighting if you don't admit what you did to them and it can re-victimize people if they are not validated in acknowledging what really happened and this is where i want to kind of make this the the second pillar of of forgiveness is that in order to be even, you know, be considered forgivable, you have to validate the experience of the victim. And this gets into maybe the, the most hopeful story of this type. And it comes with community and Rick and Morty creator, Dan Harmon. While Harmon was working on community. He became infatuated with a female writer on the show, Megan Gans, and repeatedly propositioned her, attempting to start some sort of relationship or other intimate activities. And she repeatedly, very clearly told him that she was not interested. And when it became clear to him that there was no reciprocation, he made he created a hostile work environment for Gans and he was rude to her and belittled her in the writer's room and definitely used his power as the showrunner to make her life worse only because she didn't want to have a relationship with him. So absolutely horrible. And this is eventually part of what led to him being fired from community was this hostile work environment that he created. And he sort of went years without ever really having to own up to this. But there came a point where through, I guess, reflection, he understood what he did to Gans and how terrible it was. And he issued a lengthy apology on his Harmontown podcast that went through, I think, all of the steps of a necessary apology. He explained the entire timeline, admitted to everything that he did to her, and took full responsibility for it, and claimed that he was extraordinarily sorry, and that he had learned a lot and would never do anything similar to that again. And in response to the Harmontown podcast, Gans herself called it the gold standard of apologies 
and made the magnanimous decision to forgive Harmon herself. And to my mind, we need to make sure that all of these discussions are victim-centered. And if you are attempting to relitigate things past the point where the victim themselves has reached forgiveness, then you're not actually focusing on the victim. You're focusing on trying to be punitive. Yeah. All all of this is to say that the most important lesson we can draw from this example is that in order to be at all perceived as genuine, you have to admit what you did and you have to admit the full extent of what you did and how it hurt others. Yeah. Because there was, I, I think we've mentioned this on this show before, but in the times kind of before cancel culture, there was this kind of annoyance people had at public apologies. So, you know, somebody would get caught doing something wrong. They would do something bad and, you know, people would want them to reckon with that or, you know, for there to be a reckoning. And then the powerful person would issue a, a PR apology that said, I'm sorry for what I did. It does this, this and this and whatever, whatever. And I'm sorry. I, I'm I'm sorry if I offended anyone, which is such a you know, non-apology mm-hmm. <laughs> of anything. I'm not sorry for what I did. I'm sorry for offending you. Mm-hmm. Um, which always gets me whenever I hear that. But anyway, so what ended up happening was we led to this era of cancellation where it was kind of like, well, no, the apology isn't good enough. If you're just going to apologize, everything be hunky dory and nothing changes. There needs to be some sort of punishment. And this is kind of like the public taking the role of trying to punish people for, you know, whatever their misdeeds are. So it would have been fine in the old system in the before canceling days if people had apologized and then went to make serious efforts to show that they had learned, you know, learned the lesson of what they had done, how it affected them, and then go forward in a way that truly shows that they understood what they did was wrong. And... But then, you know, there's one case that I always kind of get stuck on, and that's the case of Al Franken. Al Franken uh, was initially his the first accusation against him was that when he was doing a USO show uh, in the Middle East, he was doing a skit with an actress or someone, I forget what who she was. But she ended up, you know, he had wrote in the little skit that he kisses her and it was supposed to be for comedic effect. And she said no, said no. And then, you know, they rehearsed the scene and Al Franken like forced him, you know, forced himself onto her and kissed her against her wishes. And and then also later in that same tour had taken a picture where it you know she was asleep in a chair in like a helicopter or an airplane and he made a gesture like he was going to grope her chest 
And it was always interesting because, yes, all that happened and was bad. And Al Franken made an apology pretty fast soon after. And the the woman who was, you know, accusing and, you know, hurt by Al Franken forgave him after his initial apology. But then it came to be found out that, you know, numbers of other women accused Al Franken of during photo ops reaching his hand down too far on their uh, side and, you know, grabbing their butts. But, you know, it's just interesting that after the, you know, sometimes it happens where uh, someone does something wrong in the who's in the public eye. Um, they apologize, then the offended party, you know, accepts the apology, but things still go for full, full force. So that's one case that always gets me, but it's since then Al Franken has never made the big grand apology and to show that he's moved on from it, which is why he's like still in the doghouse and still kind of complains that, you know, he was mistreated and I was like maybe you were mistreated but you know if you want to get back into the good graces everybody kind of got to go roll with the punch and get at it but I don't know and here's something that I think it's important to remember is that when it comes to forgiveness that's kind of a personal decision getting to decide whether or not to forgive someone So if you on your own decide that, you know, you're okay with Al Franken and you're ready to introduce him into polite society, I guess that's, that's your choice. But what matters more is to do enough so that a critical mass of people accept the contrition and accept the apology. And I think that that's something that Dan Harmon has reached, whereas a lot of other people, including Al Frank and Louis C.K., probably haven't. And I think something else to remember is that it is unique being in a bigger arena like entertainment or politics, because let's say you are just like an accountant or something, and your job is just to do accounting. It's absolutely awful and unacceptable to create a hostile work environment and to sexually assault people at your work or outside of your work. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really affect your ability to be an accountant. But if Louis C.K. or Kevin Hart or Aziz Ansari, if these men's job is to make people laugh and nobody wants to laugh at you when they know what your actions and views are, there might not be any coming back from that. You know, do I, do I get, am I going to ever think that Louis CK is funny knowing what a piece of shit he is? I don't know. And he might give the most appropriate textbook apology in the world. But if I look at him and I see him as a bad person instead of a funny guy, he's just not going to be able to ever win that back. And those are the consequences of his own actions or a politician like Al Franken that we have to trust their judgment and leadership. And even if they've apologized and been forgiven, 
if we carry that memory and it compromises our ability to trust that judgment, then politics is another arena where you're facing a really big uphill battle. Yeah. You know, it, it kind of seems so back to the accountant example. So if you are an accountant and you are found to be um, manufacturing books, cooking up some books, making things appear better than they are, moving money around, shifting things to better, uh, better enrich yourself, then there is no coming back from that. <laughs> Once you are found out about that and you get punished from that, you basically don't get to a, be an accountant anymore. So I wonder if there's something similar or similar with being someone in the public eye who commits a, a breach of trust, such as, you know, a, you know, some sort of sexual assault. You know, Al Franken, you know, he was a... Uh, you know, he was a good member of the Democratic Party or for liberal causes or leftist causes, whatever you want to, you know, put it on. He was for, you know, health care, all the great programs. He was a very sharp mind in committees and, you know, was seen as a feminist. And, you know, he probably sees himself as a feminist and not needing to defend his record on that. But I saw him in person. He came to Bowling Green, Ohio, and gave a speech in 2016 to try to encourage voter turnout for Hillary Clinton. This was like, you know, less than 12 months before he would undergo this scandal. I saw him live. I have pictures on my phone, which is surreal to think about. I read his book, Giant of the Senate, and it's still one of my favorite books. Um, but when somebody commits an act against the trust of the public that you know, that, you know, at least the people who matter to Al Franken, that he truly understood the moral framework that he was trying to advance in, you know, through government, that maybe he didn't truly understand it, you know, with the actions that he took or was accused of. Yeah. Now, again, this is accused of, but, um, you know, a lot, I, I tend to find, or not even I, it seems to be that if there's a lot, a number of similar accusations, that there may be some truth to it. Um, and going after Al Franken just seems like, a, you know, an odd target to pick. Like, you know, there is the, the you know, the kind of tension between believe victims and, you know, innocent per- you know, before proven guilty, which is another thing because, you know, this is in the court of public opinion and not, you know, any sort of legal framework, but yeah. And, you know, with like Louis CK, Aziz Ansari, Kevin Hart, you know, there's with a lot of comedians, there a lot of, you know, they say edgy stuff. They push bounds on what's acceptable. I mean, at least, you know, certain categories of comedians, and part of the reason why it's socially acceptable to find them deep, funny, you know, to go and enjoy in what they're saying is because they're, you know, both sides are supposed to be in on the joke. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if Louis C.K. makes a joke about masturbating in front of people, 
it's supposed to be, ha ha, you know, you wouldn't actually do that. I mean, I'm not doing that. You wouldn't do that, right? Yeah, that's just such a ridiculous thing. And then you find out he's using his power to masturbate in front of people. It's like, oh. Yeah, the well, absurdity of the joke is gone. It's it's not a joke. It's a reality. And a lot of these things that comedians say, if they weren't jokes but reality, then it would be we would all have a lot of – yeah, we would ha- all have a whole lot of problems with all of that. And I think sometimes – I really like – this idea you were pulling apart with Franken where revealing the actions makes you reevaluate his commitment to a certain moral and just framework. And I think that you can really compromise your credibility in that way. And I always think of this, this definitely comes to my mind for Aziz Ansari because I've gone back and forth on this and Wherever you you find, if that's across the line or if it's just a bad date, what the biggest takeaway from me is that he did not communicate with that woman at all and made her extraordinarily uncomfortable. And Aziz Ansari has sort of built his reputation on being the almost effeminate guy who really gets women and understands romance. That's his book. He wrote a book about it. And... You know, Master of None really tries to explore relationships in an allegedly really relatable and insightful way. So Aziz Ansari's public persona is built on being the guy who understands relationships. But it turns out in his real life, he doesn't understand jack shit. And so even if the allegations themselves are not as serious as they are levied against other people, it still feels like Aziz Ansari probably can't ever be seen the same way again. You know, it's like if your uh, name, your favorite socialist actually also ran a sweatshop in China, you would kind of be like, Hey, wait a minute. Are you <laughs> wait, actually committed second. to this cause? <laughs> yeah. It's exactly what it's like. You know, like I said, with the accountant, you know, if you commit, tax fraud or you know cook books you don't get to be an accountant anymore you get kind of barred from doing that if you have ethical violations as a lawyer you can get disbarred and just never allowed to be you know to lawyer ever again and you know with some of these public figures in the um you know yeah, what if Bono, you know, through all of his after all of his humanitarian work, turned out he propped up rebels in an African country to kill people? Like what? <laughs> yeah. So maybe that's the thing. Maybe we need to think about cancel culture. Maybe we need to think about cancel culture less as vengeful liberals trying to destroy people's lives and more as a a public lack of confidence in someone and nobody is owed that public confidence. Yeah. They had to build it in the beginning, you know, when they started their careers. Mm -hmm. Um, And I still think, you know, Al Franken, there's a version of the last, I don't know, three or four years where he was able to make an apology does some work, you know, with women's groups and all this stuff to, you know, try and 
atone for his sins and he runs for president or runs for Senate again and is successful at it. You know, that's some version of, you know, the last few years that I could see possibly happen. But since he's decided to play the, oh, I, I don't have to apologize. I was wrongly accused. Now, did he also kind of seem like a sacrificial lamb? Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> this is um, that this isn't the Al Franken conversation, but, you know, there has to be and people don't want to admit they're wrong. But if you have done what society or a great, you know, some portion of society sees as wrong and you don't do anything to show that you think you are wrong and you're trying to do better, then you're not going to win over the trust of that part segment of society. And they may even shame other members of society who think it's okay to um, buy into your ideas or whatever. Mm -hmm. So, I mean... I'm trying to think of, I mean, if you think someone's bad and like, there's some level of polite society, like, oh, you know, he has different views with me than me, but you know, we both understand that we both want, you know, the good in society and, uh, you know, we can disagree on things, but you know, for some of these people who gets canceled, who get canceled, it's like, well, you're supporting them and they haven't shown that they've, you know, done anything about it, which means you're almost supporting, you know, people going unpunished for whatever these acts are. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just seems like, I mean, at some level it, I get a little tired about how in modern society we kind of have to have a take on everything and everything's a moral choice. But then again, we kind of have to have a take and everything's a moral choice. <laughs> Yeah, within capitalism for sure. Um, so it's it's I don't know, it's a quandary. And like most of these things, it's kind of open ended. Yeah, that's sort of my ultimate takeaway is if you want to have a good apology, admit what happened, all of it, show that you understand how it affected other people apologize prove that you've changed and then after that it's kind of not up to you you have to hope that you are forgiven and that it doesn't compromise your brand too much and if you've forgiven someone and everybody else hasn't forgiven them you know you may have to do you know try and convince them why they need to be you know why they are sufficient you know, what they've done is sufficient to be forgiven. And, you know, it may be tough. You may need to examine why you believe that they should be forgiven or why they, you know, should already have been forgiven. So, mm -hmm. it's, and it's just, it's, it's hard because there's such an emotion wrapped up in it. And it kind of feels like sometimes you end up just trying to defend a snap judgment you know, I'm pretty, I'll admit, I'm pretty anti-Al Franken. I didn't lose any sleep over what went down. But people very close to me, even women, were very upset that he resigned and that he was taken down over the allegations as levied. 
And looking back on it now, I don't think that it was even really a legitimate good faith conversation. I think it's just people who are trying to grapple with challenging societal topics and not having the language to discuss them in a fair and meaningful way. Well, and he was also kind of the wrong at the wrong place at the wrong time uh, with what his stuff happened. Like that was right when, you know, the upswing of me too. And yeah, but again, this isn't the Al Franken conversation. (laughs) Um, Yeah. It's, it's a tough subject. You know, families deal with this a lot, you know, with like a family member who's wronged someone, people take sides Mm-hmm. It tears people up because some people think that they should be give, forgiven or, you know, it's all okay. And then other people think it's not. I mean, it's it's a subject that society has always seemed to deal with. And now we just get to deal with it with really public figures who mean something to us. Yeah. For issues that haven't been fully explored by our modern society yet. So everybody's... Not only are we having to deal with forgiveness, but we're also having to deal with the ethics of moral positions that haven't been explored <laughs> as yeah. thoroughly as other ones. Like if it came out that Louis C.K. killed somebody like in cold blood, we ha- wouldn't have any issue like saying that he's a real bad guy because that's kind of settled. But well, Here's here's the key distinction there is that there's no statute of limitation on murder. So if there was an overwhelming amount of evidence that Louis C.K. was a murderer, the justice system could take over. Unfortunately, with how the justice system is set up, it makes it very difficult to prosecute the types of sexual crimes that are often bandied about within the Me Too movement and in regards to cancel culture. So it's just almost an entirely different framework that you're right. We have not settled yet. Yeah. I mean, and it's also, you know, even if we lived in a world, well, if we lived in a world where committing murder wasn't a crime actionable by the criminal justice system, then I think we would live in a very different world. But let's take the world as it is right now and say, you know, even without him getting punished, you know, it would be. It'd be extremely, extremely difficult for him to seek forgiveness mm-hmm. um, for that. Like, there would be no, you know, he killed somebody, went away for a little bit, and then just goes and does comedy without acknowledging it, as O.J. Simpson tries to do. <laughs> um, even though he did time, but, you know, that's a whole different story. This Um, isn't the OJ conversation. (laughs) This is none of the conversations about any of these people, but they are pawns in our larger conversation. Yeah. So, and you know, that that's the, the key thing is that forgiveness is tough and we're dealing, you know, a lot of times we're dealing with new issues as society or issues where, you know, if you were to just stop, if you were to just casually think about it, it's not as, you know, distinct as, you know, you would like to think, you know, as murder, you know, I feel like, you know, talking about in the justice world and like, 
and talking about justice, rules, forgiveness, bringing up murder is almost like bringing up Hitler when talking about politics. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the final case. It's like, oh, we can't have any more conversation. Joe brought up murder. <laughs> but... Evan, basically, I mean, what you brought up is something that was uh, I saw in a TED talk that I watched in preparation for this. It was called uh, Why Your Worst Deeds Don't Define You. And it was with a man named Shaka Senghor, who committed murder at the age of 19 and served about 20 years imprisonment in prison. And he basically came to the conclusion that, you know, in order for your worst moment to not define you, you have to acknowledge what you did, apologize to the proper parties for what you did, and you have to do atonement. You have to repay a debt to society and and do what you can to make it better so that what you committed doesn't happen to other people mm-hmm. and that is you know if it turned out that you know al franken had you know the allegation had been made against him he acknowledged the pain that he had caused that person and you know what they did apologized to them directly and went out and tried to make sure that you know young men and other, you know, just fully grown men go and know not to take advantage of women, even if they think it's just playful or something silly or something like that, then that would be of, you know, grounds for forgiveness. I think it's also important to try to draw a distinction between a pattern of abusive behavior and a mistake, maybe a mistake that you make while you're young. The man who you heard in your TED talk was 19. And not to say that murder is justified if the perpetrator is young, but clearly he had a lot more learning to do and had the opportunity to grow. Where is the, I don't think you can make that defense against someone like Louis C.K. who should obviously know better at this stage in his life and has made not one mistake, but a pattern of really targeted toxic behavior. Yeah. Yeah. If it's just one moment, it's a little bit easier to forgive, but yeah, if it's a pattern, you really got to showcase that you now know what you're doing or not to do that. And it's always going to be harder to accept that because if you really understood it was so bad, why did you do it so many times for so long? Yeah, it's it's a conundrum. And I'm sure and we'll keep why, grappling with it as we go on. Yeah, that's that's just what we want to do is bring it to bring it to the forefront so that hopefully we can have more of these talks and gain more insight. We'd love to hear your insight on this. I feel like with how prominent this is in the public consciousness, I don't think any one of you listening has an excuse not to have an opinion on this. So let us know. Uh, We'd love to hear. I think the real question is, can I be forgiven for how many times I've mispronounced Soleimani's name last week? (laughs) 
<laughs> yes, I forgive you. Oh, man. When I was listening to the edit of that, I was like, <laughs> I almost wanted to like just re-record me saying the name. Just edit it in every time. <laughs> yeah, when things come to Soleimani. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you know, we, we, we tried to make that episode really topical. I don't think that either of us had heard a strong consensus for what the pronunciation was. So, yeah. you know, I think that's just sort of a side effect of trying to respond quickly. Yeah. So, yeah. Let us uh, know what you think on forgiveness. So, Evan, what's our final segment? So we're just going to do a brief little recap on the Democratic primary. I have to announce to you that my Democratic presidential rankings have gone by the wayside because I am ready to formally endorse a candidate using the platform of Adequately Informed. All right. Let him let him have it. So again, this is me as Evan. Joe may or may not agree with these views, but I am today going to endorse Bernie Sanders for president of the United States in the 2020 presidential election. And I want to share just a few reasons why. Bernie, I think, is the strongest, most historically consistent fighter for progressive causes. If you listen to his speeches from the early 1990s, they are spiritually the same as what he's saying now. He gets it, he has always gotten it, and he will fight for the things that he says he's going to fight for when he's in the White House. A couple of areas where I think that he uniquely stands out because he's so similar with Elizabeth Warren and so much, it just comes down to the margins. And I think in this really strong field, we get to let it come down to the margins. So first is student debt relief. He proposes canceling all of it. Elizabeth Warren has a cap on what will be canceled. I can say that personally for me and my family, the Bernie Sanders plan will have a tangible difference from the Elizabeth Warren plan on student debt relief. Um, another way that Bernie, I think, stands out is that Elizabeth Warren is kind of hanging all of her hats on the idea of a wealth tax. And Bernie's not opposed to that, but I think that he's got other more creative ways to work the tax code to both promote responsible trading through a transactions tax and to generate more revenue for social programs. And there are just so many ways where Bernie Sanders really represents my interests in the things that I think are good policy uh, in terms of single payer for health care, uh, the severity of climate change, uh, his consistent demonstration of anti-war principles and being anti-corruption. Elizabeth Warren is trying to run as the anti-corruption candidate, but Bernie, I think, understands electoral reform as well, even if he's not as clear with it in the messaging. Specifically, he has endorsed the idea of ranked choice voting, which I won't get into here, but I think it's a really good idea. And Elizabeth Warren has not come out formally in favor of that. I think he understands criminal justice reform that's needed. And overall, I don't see a candidate who is going to sway my belief 
that Bernie Sanders is our best bet. Interesting. Hmm. So funny enough, actually, this last week, Matthew Iglesias, formerly known as the man I stand, um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, came out and endorsed Bernie Sanders. And it's for a slightly more cynical take. And it's like, yeah, he's right on some stuff. Um, He's he's got some good ideas and all that kind of stuff. But the real thing is, is that, you know, while he has pronounced very liberal views, very, I mean, left for uh, American politics views, that he's never quite been the uh, the foil to the left or to Democrats. Like, you know, there's the Freedom Caucus of Tea Partiers that were the foil to the Republicans. You know, if they didn't get their way to the fullest extent, they just shut everything down. But Bernie Sanders has always been an ally to Democrats and has never been opposed to incremental change that helps, you know, actually helps people. Mm-hmm. So in a way, he's, you know, even though he likes to think of him as a Democratic socialist, I mean, he he uh, at least as a uh, member of government, he's acted in a, you know, through liberal principles of slow bores and incremental change through and through. So. You know, I'm I'm maybe warming up, you know, I still don't want to just like just give in because I want to seem like I'm a guy who thinks away from the pack a little bit <laughs> from the people our age who are politically engaged, um, who are just like, it's Bernie Sanders or we might as well all be fascists. <laughs> and and I don't agree with that sentiment whatsoever. And I don't believe that Bernie Sanders would only be the one true hope. And but then again, I'm you don't elect fan bases, you elect people. So I'm not opposed to Bernie Sanders in any way and him being you know president. And I believe that, you know, if he were president, you know, I don't believe that, you know, whatever, quote, the revolution that he's trying to stir up is going to happen because he's been trying for about four years now and it hasn't quite materialized fully, but he's gaining in Iowa. Um, New poll came out a couple days ago saying that he's now the front runner in Iowa and, you know, he could, he could be in a good position. He definitely wins over if, you know, he wins at least the sympathy of a fair number of marginal Trump voters um, through his actions. They like his commitment to his, you know, lifelong commitment to a, you know, singular moral philosophy. And, you know, I could get behind that. You know, I don't I you know, I don't even know if I have rankings anymore. It's just kind of the, you know, let's beat Donald Trump thing. Mm-hmm. You know, there are most of these Democrats who are running right now, uh, you know, all of them, I think would be good. I mean, good presidents for the causes that I believe in. Um, so yeah, I could get behind Bernie Sanders. I'm not going to formally endorse him, but I'm warming up to the idea of him being number one, especially because I like Matthew Iglesias, you know, I'm, I'm just, a am a pass through company for his takes. <laughs> So. Well, 
Um, I agree with a lot of what you said. I think it's a good field. I think a lot of candidates would enact strong change, but to build the America that I want to see the best way is voting for Bernie Sanders for me. Let's uh, let's get Pritzker up there. Let's not. Hey, he's been doing some pretty progressive things in, in Illinois. Uh, he's a skull and bones motherfucker. <laughs> you just have a intense hatred for uh, for those uh, those elite types. Well, yeah, no. Man, you, you got more hatred for the people who uh, left the Midwest and then came back for someone who was never there to begin with. Only if they try to claim that they're Midwestern through and through. Like, stay here for college if you want to make that your identity. Well, what if they didn't know that that was their identity until later? Fine, but then I need a more fuller... I need a fuller explanation of that. We got to really get into it. Okay. Okay, so the level of coastal living is pretty uh, the barrier for forgiveness in evan's eye for coastal living is pretty high for evan you (laughs) you have to demonstrate you have to acknowledge you have to apologize and you have to atone yes and i think we're going to atone by getting ourselves some big old tenderloin sandwiches Ooh, they're tasty yep Pro tip, fold them in half. That's how I do it. But anyway, I guess that's uh, where we're going to wrap up. like to thank Anthony Hish for the music you're, you're hearing. It's nice this week. We got to have a lighter episode. <laughs> more, yeah, <laughs> a the lot last more few positive weeks. things. Not nearly as much research had to be done. Um, so you got anything else you want to say, Evan? Thanks for listening, as always. Yeah, so my name's Joe. And I'm Evan. And we hope that you've been adequately informed.